The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you, Bereans. Appreciate you being here. Um, Today is going to be actually part two of an introduction. (laughs) I don't know what it is with, I think I'm done with something and I'm not. I had to go on. So uh, we look at the introduction to the book, uh, 1 John, last week. We saw that this letter is a little bit unusual in that it doesn't name its author. Uh, There's no reference to who the recipients are or where they live. There's just no formal greeting No introduction, there's no health wish, there's no thanksgiving, and there's no final greeting. It's not an epistle that is written as a personal letter or to any one church. So it's a little bit different. Now, even though we don't know who the first recipients of the epistle were or where they lived, we do know something very important about them, I think, and I'm really convinced on this, and that is that they are believers. 1 John 2.12 says, The sins have been forgiven you. That's a description of a Christian, people. That's who he's writing to. Their sins have been forgiven. Only believers can be stated to have this designation. Now, in chapter 3, the first couple of verses, he calls them children of God. Then he calls them God's children. So, I'm relatively certain he's writing to believers. Chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe. Okay, so the intended audience of this epistle is believers. I think that's very important. But that understanding is going to mean different things to different people, depending on your soteriology. Now, you might say, what do you mean different things? Doesn't being a believer mean you're a believer? Well, it does to me, but it doesn't to everybody. Okay, because, for example, if you're an Arminian and you read that and you says, okay, it's written to believers, but they can quit being believers. So maybe he's warning them about the dangers of loss of salvation or something. No, uh, we're going to talk about that. That's not it. Well, if you come from a lordship perspective, you might be saying, well, it says they believe, but we don't really think they did believe. Okay? They're not true believers. So there's a lot of different ways you know, that people look at that. I don't think that's correct, but that's how... That's how people look at it. So it really depends on your soteriology. Now, soteriology comes from two Greek words, soter meaning Savior and logos meaning word, reason, or principle. So soteriology is the study of the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology discusses how Christ's death secures the salvation of those who believe. And it helps us understand the doctrine of redemption, justification, sanctification, propitiation, Substitutionary atonement. What I would like to do this morning is to share with you what I see as a biblical soteriology. Now, within the professing church, there's two main views of soteriology. You have the Arminian and the Calvinist. Now, an Arminian is someone who thinks that man is responsible for the decision of salvation. God put all the machinery in place and it's basically left us to operate it. All right, They believe that it, the individual makes the choice as to whether he is a Christian or not. They believe that a person who is a Christian can lose their salvation. Now, 
The spectrum is broad here. Some people think you can lose your salvation because you sin. Others think, well, no, you have to actually turn away from Christ. So there's a, a variety of opinions on how you lose it. But, and on the other hand, there's a Calvinist. Someone who believes that salvation is of the Lord. They believe that it is God who chooses who's going to be saved. They also believe that a person cannot lose their salvation. Now, within evangelical churches, there is an ongoing debate on this issue. It's been going on since the beginning. I don't think it's ever going to be solved. Is salvation by the choice of man or is it by the sovereign choice of God? I believe it is by the sovereign choice of God. Now, so you got the Arminian, you got the Calvinist. And within these two views, there, there's another two views called Lordship Salvation and Free Grace Position. And I believe that most Calvinists and most Arminians hold to a lordship view. Alright? And we'll try to describe this as we go along here. But among Calvinists and Arminians, there are also those who hold to the free grace position. Now, which of these views, if any, does the Bible teach? Which of these theological positions is biblical soteriology? Well, you know, we as believers, we need to hold to a theological position. Alright? We need to have a framework, a grid, a paradigm, if you would, through which we filter things. Alright? As we see things, as we hear things, as we read things, they need to be filtered through that grid of what we understand the Bible to teach. All of our theology has to come from exegesis. In other words, drawing it out of the text. When we take our theology and we force it on the text, that's called eisegesis. Okay? We're forcing it on there. That's not really what it teaches, but we're making it say that. We need to allow the text of the Bible to speak, and we need to allow it to shape that our theology. What we believe needs to come from the Scripture. And if you find that the Scripture goes against your theology... You ought to change your theology. Okay? And I know a little bit about changing my theology because everything I believe now at one time I didn't. Okay? I held to every other position. I mean, you name it, I was there at one time and I changed my theology. And I think that teaching through the Scripture verse by verse is what made the difference to me. You know, you see things in light of their context and you see things a little bit different. But I've changed. I was Arminian at one time. Hardcore Arminian. I thought Calvinists were of the devil. I really did. I mean, I thought, well, how could you hold to such a blasphemous theology? And at one time, I was lordship. And I thought the free grace position was you had to be out of your mind, you know, to hold that position. I thought it was blasphemous. All right? I I remember very clearly, uh, we went out with another couple this man was here because he was going to law school at CBN, and uh, he, had, he had been a former pastor in Montana, and then he moved here and was going to law school, and we, we went out, yeah, regent, and, uh, <clears throat> and we, had this, we got into a discussion on lordship and free grace. I'm lordship, he's free grace. You know, and I'm just, you know, dinner doesn't taste so good when you're, you know, upset like that, you know, so, but we went on into the night, and I got home, I guess, about one o'clock, and Kathy went to bed, and I went to my study, And I remember I went to my study and I was angry and I got on my knees and I just prayed. I said, Lord, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. I think it's so against Scripture. But 
if it's true. Don't let me miss it. And I remember over the next six months, my views, you know, reading things and just my views starting to change, and it was uh, quite a drastic change in my life, but uh, all right. <laughs> well, let's examine these views in light of Scripture and see what we come up with. All right, let's start with the Arminian view. I think most of you are pretty familiar with this. Most people are probably familiar with the five points of Calvinism, right? You hear TULIP, you know the five points of Calvinism, but I don't think many people are aware that those, those, the five points was a response all right, a Calvinistic response to a manifesto put out by certain Belgic semi-Pelagians in the 17th century. The Arminian Manifesto states this as its fifth point. It rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace. By keeping up their faith, those who fail here fall away and are lost. As Christians... Do we live on the brink of damnation? I mean, is our salvation conditional on our ability to maintain it? You talk about depression. I mean, people get depressed about a lot of things less significant than that. But I can understand depression. I can understand taking massive amounts of Prozac if you think you can lose your salvation. Does the Bible teach that believers can lose their salvation? No, it does not. And since it doesn't, I think it should be obvious that Arminian theology is bad theology. Let me show you just a couple of scriptures here. John 6.37, the Lord says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Uh, there's a promise from our Lord. In this context, coming to Christ and believing in Christ are synonymous. We see that in chapter 6 here. So he who comes to Christ is the one who believes in Christ. Who does that? Well, he says all that the Father gives me. Now, we talked about this when we went through John. There is a certain group of people that have been given by the Father to the Son as a love gift. They're called the elect. So the ability to believe on Christ requires divine enablement. It's only those the Father enables to come to faith in Christ that can do that. And these are all the people who the Father gives to the Son as a gift. Now the word here, gives, is a word of destiny. It's divine sovereign election. This is what theologians call irresistible grace. It doesn't mean that God drags people kicking and screaming against their will. It means that God gives them a new heart and they respond to the Gospel. It's irresistible because you got a new heart. You're alive spiritually. Now you can love God. You can... Serve God. He goes on to say, and this is the will of Him who sent me. Well, let's back up a little bit. He says, I have come down from heaven, Christ is talking, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So I came to do the Father's will, and this is the Father's will who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me. So if one individual that the Father gave to the Son failed to reach heaven, it'd be a disgrace to the Son since it would indicate his inability or unwillingness to fulfill the Father's will. If you are a believer, you are secure. You can never lose your salvation. And I've said this over and over. If you think you can lose your salvation, you do not understand salvation. You just don't understand what happened. It is God's sovereign will that those whom He gives to Yeshua will believe. They will have eternal life. They will be resurrected on the last day. Hendrickson writes this. 
Scripture teaches a counsel that cannot be changed, a calling that cannot be resolved, an inheritance that cannot be defiled, a foundation that cannot be shaken, a seal that cannot be broken, a life that cannot perish. This is the Father's will, who has sent me, that of all that He has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. Christ will lose none of those that the Father has given Him. Believers, we're secure in Christ. The only kind of life that is given is everlasting. Now, the argument we see in Romans 5, 8-10 through 10, is one of the most powerful arguments with respect to the assurance of salvation, I think, that can be found anywhere in the whole Scripture. Paul writes this, And God shows His love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? We're sinners. We're enemies. He died for us then. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by blood, much more shall we be saved by Him. Verse 9 says, much more. This is an a fortiori argument, which is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God has done the greater in verse 8, surely He'll do the lesser in verse 9. In verse 10, again, He says, much more. Much more. All right? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, while we hated God, while we were His enemies, He brought us into Union with His Son. Reconciled us together, but much more. Now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? If He did the, that for us when we were His enemies, what's He going to do for us now that we're His children? We're saved by sharing His life. We are in Christ. We are accounted perfectly righteous, having paid the debt of sin and having fulfilled the law by our union with Christ. If God sent His Son to die for us while we're enemies, while we're ungodly sinners, how much more is He going to do for us now that we're His children and we're righteous? Because we share His life. We are eternally safe. We are eternally secure. Look at Romans 8.30. Those who He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. <coughs> this people is an unbroken chain. Okay? The predestined are going to be glorified. Because everyone He predestined, He called, everyone He called, He justified, everyone He justified, He glorified. Alright? Nobody gets lost. Every person He predestined will be glorified. There's no possibility of a believer losing their salvation. Now, so Arminianism is just wrong, okay? They don't understand how you get saved, they don't understand how you keep it, they don't understand a lot of it, a lot about salvation, and I just think it's you know, it's a wrong theology. I held it for many, many years. I supported it. I defended it. And I think it's crazy. Okay? There's, obviously, there's verses, okay, that are misunderstood by the Arminian that you, they use to support their view. All right, so the other main view is Calvinism. All right? Calvinism teaches that salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chose a people, the Son died for the people, the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith. The entire process, election, redemption, regeneration, is a work of God, and it is by grace alone. Thus God, not man, determines who the recipients of the gift of salvation are. Thus God, not man, receives the glory for that salvation. Calvin said this, we shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought to be 
that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know His eternal election, which illumines God's grace by contrast, that He does not indiscriminately adopt into all into the hope of salvation, but gives to some what He denies to others. Notice how Luke put this in Acts chapter 13. And Paul of Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the Word of God be spoken to you. He's talking to the Jews. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Now watch. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? The ones that God had appointed to eternal life. He could have just said, and many people believed. He's done that a lot through this book. But he's careful here to tell us that it's those who God appointed that came to faith. Luke uses predestination terminology to point out here, as elsewhere, that it is faith. Faith is a work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. Spurgeon said this, If anyone should ask me what I mean by a Calvinist, I should reply, He is one who says, Salvation is of the Lord. I cannot find in Scripture any other doctrine than this. It is the essence of the Bible. It's amazing how many people quote Spurgeon, but <laughs> don't like Spurgeon's theology. You know, <clears throat> yeah. All right, so it is my opinion that Calvinism is the correct soteriology. I'm pretty sure most of you are with me on that. But within Calvinistic theology, there's two views that are very important and very different. And I want to spend my time this morning kind of looking at these different views and talking about them. First of all, the lordship view. Alright, this is probably the most widely accepted of the views among Reformed thinkers. Those who hold to Lordship theology believe that a person is truly a Christian, they will live a righteous, obedient life. And listen, this is, this is an important distinction to me, but when I talk about someone who's Lordship, they believe you are going to automatically live a righteous, holy life. Because you've been born again, it just, it's going to happen. Yeah, I know. That's, I'm there too. I'm like, wow, I must not be saved because it's not working that way with me. All right? <clears throat> they teach without a practical righteousness. There's no reason for a person to think they're a Christian. So you got to look at your life and say, ah, I'm not sure. Today's not a good day for me. You know? I'm in, I'm out, I'm in, I'm out. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount says this, Nothing is more dangerous than to rely only upon a correct belief. What? It's dangerous to rely on a correct, correct belief and a fervent spirit. And to assume that as long as you believe the right things and are zealous and keen and active concerning them, you're therefore of necessity a Christian. What he is saying is there, being a Christian is more than just believing the right things. You've got to have obedience in there. And he's not alone on this view. According to Lordship Salvation, saving faith includes more than faith. It includes submission, obedience, confession, 
Repentance, add whatever you want. Richard Belcher <coughs> says this. <coughs> Excuse me. True saving faith includes in it a submission to the Lordship of Christ. Mm, oh, the Lordship of Christ. In other words, you do whatever He says to do. Another Lordship proponent says, saving faith is trust in Christ Himself. It's a commitment of self in submission to all that Christ has revealed. In other words, you submit yourself to everything that the Lord said to do. John MacArthur says, Saving faith, then, is the whole of my being embracing all of Christ. Faith cannot be divorced from commitment. MacArthur also says, The true test of faith is this, does it produce obedience? If it's not, it's not saving faith. So it has to produce this obedience in the life. All right, Bailey Smith asserts, saving faith is not mere intellectual assent. It involves an act of submission on our part. So those who hold to a lordship view would say that true Christian life is characterized by obedience to everything the Father has commanded. You live in submission to the lordship of Christ. You do everything, and it's just, again, this is an automatic thing because you're a Christian. Now, please think about this. Yeshua is the only person, the only person who ever lived in complete obedience to the Father. The only one. All are men of sin. And the only reason that any person gets to heaven is because Yeshua's obedience is imputed to their account. So you have to, to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. You have to be absolutely obedient. And so if we're counting on our own merit, we don't get there. Alright? These are some of my favorite verses. I think if you understand them, they, they have to be yours. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, alright, Adam's sin, led to condemnation. The word condemnation, their katakrama, means uh, the sentence led to damnation, we could say. Alright? One trespass led to damnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, that's Christ, leads to justification of life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam was disobedient, we were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now Romans 5, 12-21 is a comparison of two men, Adam and Christ. The comparison is simple. There are two men, each performed a single act that brought forth a single result. That result is experienced by every member of their respective races. The emphasis in this section is on how one man's act affects all he represents. Now the word made here is causative, not causative, it's declarative. And that's really important, alright? Those in Adam were declared sinners. It's imperative that you understand this. By one man's disobedience, the many were regarded as sinners. He doesn't say they were made sinful, but made sinners. The whole human race has been constituted legally as sinners. That's our judicial standing before God. And it's based entirely and solely on Adam's one act of disobedience. Now that's one side. Thank God there's another side to the parallel. So by, this is the other side of the equation, By the righteous act of one man, the Lord Yeshua the Christ, the many are made righteous. 
See, our salvation is based entirely on Him, from Him and in Him. And my being a sinner came from Adam. That's why I was a sinner because of Adam. Now I am righteous because of Christ. All my righteousness comes entirely from the Lord. Listen, look at this verse. So by one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. So how come I'm righteous? Because of Christ's obedience. So people say, well, you need to be obedient to go to heaven. I agree. Guess what? I am obedient 100% all the time. And you're like, what? Yeah, because I'm in Christ. If I don't have His righteousness, if I don't have His obedience, then I'm in trouble. And so are you. So are we all. I'm righteous. I will always be righteous because I'm in Christ. And Christ never changes, so neither will I. Your salvation of mine depends only entirely exclusively upon the obedience of Him. That's why I said if you think you can lose salvation, you don't understand what it is. I'm in union with Christ. I share all He is and has. And I have as much chance of losing my salvation as Christ has getting kicked out of the Trinity. What are the chances of that? None. Now, here's what I want you to understand. To me, this is the issue of the Lordship. This righteousness is not imparted to me. It is imputed to me. You understand the difference? All right? It's imparted. It's put to my account. When you look at Dave Curtis, it says, righteous. <laughs> Let me say this again. When you look at Dave Curtis's account, it says, righteous. When you look at Dave Curtis, you say, hmm, maybe not so much, okay? Why? Because it's not imparted. If it was imparted to me, then guess what? When I became a Christian, pfft, Everything, man, I'm doing good. I'd be holy. I'd be righteous. No battles to fight. I'm just living a righteous, holy life because I got it in me, right? No, it's put to my account. Down here, in practice, it doesn't look that way. And that's the problem, the main problem I have with lordship. When they're saying it is put to your, not just put to your account, it's imparted to you. And I say it wasn't to me. It was imputed to me. It wasn't imparted to me. Okay? I remember as a young Christian reading 2 Corinthians. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. And I'm like, am I really a Christian? This doesn't fit in my life. No, it's talking about our identification with Christ. It's talking about our position. It's not talking about our practice. And when you make those verses practical, and if you're open to see reality, you say something's not right here. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sakes He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. People, that's us. We've become the righteousness of God. Positionally. Positionally. Not practically. Positionally in my standing before God, I'm completely righteous, totally obedient because I'm in Christ. It has been imputed to my account. That's my position. That's my standing. Now, when men talk about obedience being necessary to enter heaven, too often they're referring to practical obedience, practical righteousness. In other words, as a Christian, you have to do these certain things or you're not getting in. They're done in Christ. I'm in Christ. 
John MacArthur writes this, Hell is undoubtedly full of people who did not actively oppose Jesus Christ, but simply drifted into damnation by neglecting to respond to the gospel. Such people are in view in Hebrews 2, 1-4. They are aware of the good news of salvation provided by Jesus Christ, but aren't willing to commit their lives to Him. See, the reason he says these people aren't believers is because the commitment level, okay? They're not committed to do that. What, doesn't pers- what does a person need to commit his life to? Does he have to count the cost? Does he have to sacrifice? How many things does he have to do to be saved? Look at Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Sounds like it's free. Doesn't it? Does that sound like a call to commitment? A call to sacrifice? If commitment or sacrifice is involved, okay, yes, I'm going to jump on this bandwagon again because I think it's important, all right? People add things to the gospel, and I think that is. You have to be obedient, right? What's your first question? How obedient? Yeah, I mean, if you're a thinking individual, you'll want to know that, right? Okay, I want to be saved. I've trusted Christ, but now you're telling me I have to be obedient. How obedient? Please say like 20%, okay? I mean, nobody's going to answer that for you because nobody can answer that for you. The only thing they will be able to tell you is it won't be 100%, right? Because nobody gets in. So what is it, 90? I mean, give me a number here. I want something to work with, you know? I don't like things in the gray area. I want to understand. I'm going, this is heaven or hell. I want to understand where I'm going. So if it takes obedience, how much does it take? Nobody can answer that. They just say, well, you got to be obedient. Really? How much is enough? How much is enough? I want to know I'm going to make it. If complete obedience is, I'm in trouble. Even if 50%, I guess I'm in trouble. Notice what Paul said. Men, pay attention here for just a second. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, that's tough enough, right? No, I knew it. I knew that was coming. That, that is tough. The reason it's tough is because I have trouble loving myself, and you add another human being to the equation, it makes it more difficult. But here's the, here's the thing. Husbands, don't just love your wives, but love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, how many of you husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church? Anybody want to raise their hand? You know, Jeff, I was going to say, Jeff, Jeff could maybe say, raise his hand because Veronica wasn't here, but she came in and ruined the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> All right, guys, how many of you come real close, though, to loving your wife like Christ loved the church? Let me tell you something. Without exaggeration, almost, almost on a daily basis, I pray and ask the Lord to help me love my wife like Christ loved the church. And almost on a daily basis, I blow it. And and I'm like, Lord, why? Is it hard for me to love somebody else? You know? It's because I'm self-centered and selfish and they want different things than I want and so it ends up a problem. 
All right, all right, let me, let's try something a little easier. This is not going to work, okay? Hey, if you're lordship, you say, you got to obey the Word of God, all right? You need to live an obedient life, and then, okay, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? You want someone want to be arrogant enough to tell me they're doing that, they're pulling up. I want to talk to the wife, okay? I want to get a private personal opinion from her, or by, off, off by herself, okay? All right, let's try something a little easier. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? This is the will of God. It's God's will that we as His children be thankful when? Always. How many circumstances? Every one of them. So let me ask you this. Are you thankful in every and for every situation? You see how complicated it gets when you require obedience as a necessary element of salvation? We, we usually make the obedience something superficial, something we can do. And then we feel good about it because we're doing that one little thing maybe, all right? So the Lordship view has become widespread in the church today, but is it biblical? Well, I think it's, a, I think it's caused by an oversense of justice. You know, if they're going to be a Christian, they got to do this. They, you know, it's not going to be simple or easy for them. Can't make it too easy. You know, they call it easy believism. And it's not easy. It's if you're called, you believe. It is easy, okay? God gives it to you and you believe it, all right? There's nothing difficult about it. Is there hard believism? So at issue here are really three things, all right? Lordship view versus free grace. Three things that are at issue. The nature of faith. What does it really mean to even believe? The relationship between faith and assurance, and the effect of salvation. In other words, the debate centers around these critical questions. What must a person do to be saved? What must a person do to know he's saved? And how will salvation show itself in someone's life? All right? Let's look at the nature of faith first. <clears throat> what must you do to be saved? What exactly is saving faith? A lot of, we just recently talked about the Church of Christ and their doctrine of, you know, you can add, faith is this connected key, so you can add anything to it. it when the, they say whenever the Bible says faith, it means faith, confession, repentance, uh, baptism, you know, all those are connected. And I'm saying that's nonsense, okay? Those are separate words, talking about separate things. Here's faith. Saving faith is this. It is understanding and assent to the propositions of the gospel. Okay? You understand what a proposition is? It's a statement about Christ, a statement of truth. You understand, you read it, you say, okay, the Bible says Christ died to pay my sins. I understand Christ went to the cross. I understand, I understand that. I believe that. I believe He died for me. That's understanding and assent to a proposition. Faith is not some special kind of faith that you know, has a different essence or quality than other kinds of faith. There are not different kinds of faith. You say, oh yes there is. There's the faith of Islam and the faith of Christianity, Christianity the faith of the Muslim. No, listen. There's different objects of faith. There's not different kinds of faith. Faith is believing something is true. If I said, he told me the check is in the mail, and I believed him. And you're going to ask me, did you believe with your head or your heart? I would say, what the heck are you talking about? 
believe with my head or my heart. You ever seen that track, Missing Heaven by 18 Inches? I'm like, dag, so close. <laughs> and it's because you believed with your head and not with your heart. First of all, people, the heart is a muscle. It is a blood-pumping organ. You think with your mind, all right? So if you're going to believe something, you're going to believe it with your mind, not with your heart, all right? They're just trying to say, well, you just, it was easy believism or something like that, all right? Of course, you're not going to ask me that stupid question. Do you believe with your head or your heart? Because you understand what it means when I say I believe something. But when it comes to Christianity, we look for some kind of under, different understanding about faith. In other words, oh, it means all these different things. It's not just believing anymore. Really. In his book, Faith and Saving Faith, Gordon Clark writes this. <clears throat> Before we look at this quote from Clark, let me just say this, all right? If you are Calvinistic and you are Lordship, I would strongly encourage you to read this book put out by the Trinity Foundation. Now, I'd strongly encourage you to read it, but it's going to cost you, okay? I went on Amazon the other day. I bought this book. It's been in my library for a long, long time. I paid $6 for it, okay? I looked it up on Amazon the other day. It was $58. For a paperback. I'm like, wow, this must, I don't know what's happened. I don't know if it's not in print anymore or what the deal is, but let me just say this book will challenge your thinking, all right? It's written by Gordon Clark. He was a Calvinistic theologian. He was a leading figure associated with presuppositional apologetics. And, you know, I guess you could say I'm Clarkian. I just like Clark's writings, but this book blew me away, okay? Um, because he's Calvinistic, and most Calvinist people have to be lordship. Well, he's not lordship, and he really deals in this book with, like the title, Faith and Saving Faith. Which is it? You know, are they different? Clark says this, One may believe that two and two is four. This is arithmetic. One may also believe that asparagus belongs to the lily family. This is botany. Botany is not mathematics, of course, but the psychology or linguistics of believe is identical in all cases. Christ's promises of salvation are vastly different from the propositions of botany. But believing is always thinking that a proposition is true. That's what faith is. It's believing something. Something about Christ. The last paragraph of the book, Clark states this. Faith, by definition, is assent to understood propositions. Not all cases of assent, even assent to biblical propositions, are saving faith. In other words, there's a lot of things about the Bible you can believe that they're not saving faith, because that's not what they're dealing with. But, he says, all saving faith is assent to one or more proposition, biblical propositions. So faith is faith, whether it be Christianity or mathematics. Saving faith is taking God at His Word. It's believing what He said. And you're not to add a bunch of stuff to that. Amen. It's not a schenectity. It is just a word. Faith. Believe. There's a lot of other things the Bible lays out there. Confession and repentance and baptism. And all these. They're not all connected. In Romans 4, we looked at this last time, 4, 20, 21, Abraham, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. God made Abraham a promise, and he believed it. How about that? 
He grew strong in faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's faith. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. Look at 1 John 5, 9 and 10. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Now he says the testimony of God is greater. Verse 9 is saying that we accept human testimony, right? We receive the testimony of men. Someone tells us something, oh yeah, okay, I believe that. Of course, depending, we're going to believe that or not believe it depending on what? The character of the person who's telling it to us, right? All right, you know someone's a liar, okay? I know a man, he would, you know he's lying if his lips are moving, okay? You just know, okay? So anytime he says something, I just smile and you shake your head, you're like, no, you're lying, you know? You're not, so I just don't believe what he, what he would tell me. But there's other people who I have absolute confidence in, and they said something to me, it's like, it's done. They said it, it's going to happen, there's no chances of it not happening. Unless they die before they can carry it out. You know, because you have that kind of confidence in them. We believe the testimony of men. Well, verse 9 says, we accept human testimony. How much more will we accept God's testimony? You think God's got good character that we can trust what He says? Yes. And it's not that the faith receives it as greater. The testimony is greater, it gets more reliable because it's God who's telling us that. Now, here's something I have to make very clear. I am not saying that everyone who says they're a Christian is one. Okay? And that's what people, you get accused of. You think everybody says they're, no, I don't. Not at all. I think everybody in this country thinks they're a Christian. Just because they live in this country. It's like a Christian country. If you live here, you're automatically a Christian. Right? No, going in a garage doesn't make you a car, and living in this country doesn't make you a Christian either, all right? I was talking with a man, and he told me he was a Christian. You know, I'm like, okay, well, let me ask you this. And this is the telltale question, okay? To me, this, this cuts through all the bull and just lays it all out there. I said, all right, let me ask you this. If you were to die right now, and you stood before God, and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your response be? What would you tell him? And he stopped for a minute, he looked at me, he goes, you know, I'm not sure. He says, I haven't been to confession lately. (laughs) So I said, you know, I know this guy's not a Christian. He has no clue what it means to even be a Christian. So I shared the gospel with him and he was very open. He's like, well, that's it. It's like he never heard that before. See, the Lordship view has redefined saving faith. So it's more than just taking God at His Word. To them, saving faith involves surrender, commitment, submission, repentance, sacrifice. And these additions are both linguistically invalid and biblically invalid. Faith is simply believing. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see... See? The Lord should go, see, you got to obey. I knew it was in there somewhere, right? Well, the word translated here, whoever does not obey in the ESV, by the way, it's translated, he that believeth not in the King James. 
It's the verb apitheo. And the leading Greek lexicon of the New Testament, Bauer, Arndt, Gingrich, and Danker, make this comment about apitheo. They say, since in the view of the early Christians, the supreme disobedience was a refusal to believe the gospel, apitheo may be restricted in some passages to the meaning disbelieve being unbeliever. And that's what they say. Whoever does not obey the gospel by believing it, they're not going to see light. They're not going to see light. A person who trusts Christ alone obeys completely the will of the Father to believe in Yeshua alone for salvation. Augustine wrote this, Faith is nothing else than to think with assent. Sounds like Clark. Maybe you got that from Clark. Or maybe Clark got it from him. <clears throat> John Calvin wrote this, for as regards justification, faith is something merely passive, bringing nothing of ours and recovering of God's favor, but receiving from Christ what we lack. Okay? Look at John 20. We're familiar with this text here. Now, Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? So you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in your name. Again, this is the only book in the New Testament, so designated for the purpose to bring men to faith in Christ. And this only book does not talk about baptism and it does not talk about repentance. Repentance is never mentioned in here. And that's interesting to me that a book written about salvation would leave out some constituent elements that are really key. So either John made a mistake or we're making a mistake. So you take your pick there, okay? Uh, <clears throat> He says, whoever believes that Yeshua is the Christ. Now, Yeshua is the Christ. That, it's not merely verbalizing this phrase like a parrot that saves you. Yeshua is the Christ, I'm saved. No. You need to believe that Yeshua is the Christ, and before you can believe it, you need to understand, what does that mean? See, it's understanding and ascent. You have to understand first. We must believe that Yeshua is the Christ in the Johannian sense of the term. We must understand Christ as John does. How does John understand Christ? Well, if you go back to chapter 11... Yeshua said there, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. So in verse 27, Mary says that she believes the very thing that the Gospel of John was written to bring her to believe. In verse 26, Yeshua asked, Do you believe this? What is this? It's the statement about Yeshua Himself that He gives in verse 25. He tells her He is the resurrection and the life. But that's not all He asks her to believe. Yeshua is saying, I guarantee resurrection life to everybody who believes in Me. See, to believe in Yeshua, to believe that He's the Christ, is in essence to believe that He is the guarantor of eternal life to everyone who trusts Him. So if I can make people understand what it means to believe that Yeshua is the Christ, they'll either believe it or they won't. And if they believe it, that's faith. But the Lordship view presents faith as it were. I have all the facts and I believe them, but now there's another step or two that I have to do. There's an act of the will, there's surrender, there's commitment, there's sacrifice. That's not biblical. <clears throat> There's no extra things you have to do. Because faith is a gift from God. Alright? It's 
He's the one providing that, and He provides all that you need. Look at Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work but believes. Saving faith is accepting the testimony of God. You believe that Yeshua is the Christ? If you do, then on the testimony of Scripture, you're saved. You possess eternal life. Benjamin Warfield, he was a Presbyterian. He probably would not have put himself in my camp. But he says this, The saving power resides exclusively not in the act of faith, or the attitude of faith, or the nature of faith, but in the object of faith. We're trusting Christ. We're trusting what He said. Now look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Alright, now the truth is, technically we're not saved by faith. We're saved through faith. In other words, faith is the instrumental means. Grace is the efficient means of our salvation. We are saved by Yeshua. We're saved by His grace. We're saved through faith. I think you, understand, you would understand what I meant if I said to you, I put out the fire with the hose. Okay? Now the picture you have in your mind is I got a hose and I'm beating the fire with it, right? Because I put it out with the hose. No, you know what I'm talking about. Hoses are channels of water to put the fire out. The hose is the instrumental means. The water is the efficient means. The water is what puts the fire out. Faith is the... <laughs> you got to have water in there. Okay. <laughs> Hydrocephalitis. <clears throat> Faith is the instrumental means by which we are able to access our salvation through Yeshua. Now, John Robbins, in the foreword of Gordon Clark's book, uh, Faith and Saving Faith writes this. He says, Belief of the truth, nothing more, nothing less, is what separates the saved from the damned. Those who maintain there is something more than belief are quite literally beyond belief. Alright, this is a Calvinist saying this. This is not an Arminian, okay? Now let me give you a test to see if you understand what we're talking about here. Look at John 12. Nevertheless, many even among the authorities believed in Him. Oh, that's cool. Jewish authorities are coming to believe in Christ. Now watch the text. But, for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. Uh-oh. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What? we got a dilemma here. Were these individuals saved? Were they Christians? What's the text say? They believed. Okay? They believed. But, well, but it says they didn't confess them. Don't you have to confess to be a Christian? Does it say that in this gospel somewhere? Because I must have missed it if it does. No! They're Christians. Now the Lordship view would say, no, no, they can't be Christians. They didn't confess. But the Scripture says they believed. Now listen, it doesn't say they thought they believed. They acted like they believed. They pretended to believe. It doesn't say any of those things. It just says they believed Him. They did what the Gospel, this Gospel says you have to do to have eternal life. They believed. But it says, yeah, but, but, but I mean, they didn't confess them. So, see, we have added that. And so we say, well, they can't be Christians. And then we go against what the Scripture says. Mark Copeland the author of the Executable Outlines, talking about this text, says this, There are some who teach that as long as one believes in Jesus, he'll be saved. That's me, okay? 
That salvation is by faith only. That's me. But there is such a thing as an unsaved believer. (laughs) I'm like, really? What is an unsaved believer? And here's why he says that. Because there were some who believed in Jesus, but they were not saved. And he gives that text we just looked at. Well, why does he think they weren't saved? Because they didn't confess. So in his mind, confession goes with salvation, and you can't be a Christian if you didn't do that. He says, let let no one think just because they believe in Jesus, they have a free ticket to heaven. Uh, I got news for you, Mark. It is a free ticket. Christ paid greatly for that ticket, but to me it's free. And what I have to do to receive that ticket is believe in Him. Okay? Now, because people get confused on you know, what they think is part of salvation, they're going against Scripture. The text of Scripture, the inspired text says they believe in a book that says that's how you get to heaven. All right? John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. All right, you believe, you get eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, it's passed from death to life. Lordship theology causes people to doubt the testimony of Scripture. Faith is believing, and believing alone makes you a Christian. Look at Acts 8, 12 and 13. And when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Yeshua the Christ, they were baptized. So their people are believing, they're preaching the gospel, they're believing. Both men and women, watch this. Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now the words believe and believed are used 37 times in Acts and they clearly refer to those who trust Christ and are saved. For example, we see it in Acts 10.34, everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. We see it in 13.39, And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, the Word of God says Simon believed. To say that he didn't, again, is to question inspiration. But notice what the text in Acts goes on to say, because again, we're going to argue with the text because we see things we don't like, right? Now, Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money. Hey guys, that's a pretty cool trick. Can I get some of that? Can I get in on that? He offered them money saying, give me the power also so that anyone who I may lay my hands receive the Holy Spirit. That's cool. I want to be able to do that. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Now, because of Simon's actions and because of Peter's rebuke, people say he wasn't a Christian. And again, I go back and say, well, the text says he believed. So something's wrong there, okay? Something's wrong. If he wasn't a Christian... Did he lose his salvation? See, the Lordship view says you can't be saved because there's no commitment, there's no sacrifice, no good works, but the Scripture says he believed. Now, who are you going to believe? The Scripture or people who say he couldn't have because he didn't do the right things? And see, and, and depending on what group you're dealing with, 
there's always going to be people who say, tell you what the things that you have to do and not do are different, right? Because there's some groups, playing cards is a sin. A mark of the unregenerate. Okay? It just is. Dancing. That's a sin. Okay? Going to movie. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Okay? So depending on what group you're associating with, it gets the, the rules get more and more to identify what a true Christian looks like. Alright? Okay, so the nature of faith is, is believing. You believe and you got it. Alright? What's the relationship between faith and assurance? We talked about this last week, so I don't want to go into a lot of depth here, but let me give you a quote from Luther. Certainty does not come to me from any kind of reflection on myself and my state. On the contrary, it comes solely through hearing the Word, solely because I cling to the Word and its promise. Thank you, Luther. Uh, now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, Luther was a Calvinist, okay? <laughs> Luther was a Calvinist, all right? He, he believed what Calvin... But let's say he's Augustinian, okay? He believed what Augustine taught, all right? As did Calvin, all right? Um, <clears throat> solely because I cling to the Word. How do, how do I know... How do you know you're a Christian, Martin Luther? Because I believe the Word. He said, if you believe me, you have eternal life. I believe him, I have eternal life. But I don't get it by looking at my life. Again, if you get assurance from looking at your life, something's wrong there. Okay? You're really underestimating your own sinfulness, I think. All right? Now, we looked at this quote from Calvin last week, but it's important because it shows that Calvin was a Calvinist. All right? From one's work, conscience feels more fear and consternation than assurance. I had to look that up because I, I would use this quote so many times. And last week I said, okay, where did I get that from? Well, it's from the Institutes of Christian Religion, Book 3, 1420. All right? Calvin said, you look at your life and it, it should make you fear. Not get, you know, assurance. Okay? Because, you know, he basically is saying, we don't add up, people. We don't, you know, we look at our lives and we think, how could I be a Christian? It's of the assurances of the essence of faith. Calvin taught that. If good works are the basis of assurance, then the believer's eyes are distracted from the sufficiency of Christ and His work to meet our needs. And our eyes are focused on ourselves. Our assurance is to be based on God's Word. His promise that He would give eternal life to all who believe. Assurance does not come from our works. What's the effect of salvation? How will salvation show itself in one life? Well, the Lordship view teaches that Christians must and will produce fruit. Right? And boy, that's a broad spectrum. What is fruit? Okay? What fruit are you talking about? Okay? Uh, how, how, what kind of fruit? It depends on, you know, I uh, <clears throat> was on Facebook this morning and there was a preacher on there who said, you know, Got drunk last night, got drunk yesterday afternoon, and a bunch of profanities in there. And then, you know, about ten hours later, there's an apology. Sorry, shouldn't, shouldn't post things when I'm drunk. Well, I thought, I thought Ephesians says, be not drunk with wine. So I was a little confused there to start with. But anyway, you know, so we say, okay, obviously you can't be a Christian, right? I told you before, if I heard somebody cuss, I wrote them off. They're, you know, when I was lordship, Christians don't talk like that. All right? So they get this big argument about they got to produce fruit. 
If heaven can't be obtained apart from obedience to God, then logically that obedience is a condition of getting there. And again, we get into this, how much? How much fruit? What is fruit? What Can you have good fruit over here, but rotten fruit over here? Like I said, how, how many are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That means everything in your life is just given over to God. Who signs up that? Who's, who's doing that? One writer who holds the Lordship view says this, The life of God in man will always produce a righteous pattern. And if you have an unrighteous pattern in your life, you're fighting against the very nature God has created in you. It's like holding your breath. It's a lot harder than breathing. Let me ask you something, Christians. I think I know most of you. I think I know all of you. I think, you know, I believe your claims to be Christian. Is unrighteousness hard to do? Is it like holding your breath? It's really hard for me to be unrighteous. I gotta, I gotta really try to be unrighteous, right? Does any of you find that to be true? I don't find that to be true. It's not hard for me to be unrighteous. It's just not pay attention to life for a few seconds and ban. It's like, where did that come from? That guy still lives in there? You know? I mean, living a holy life, people, is not easy. It takes constant diligence. We need to live in constant dependence upon God. We need that, and this is what the book of 1 John is about. It's about fellowship. It's about walking in intimate fellowship with God so we live a righteous, holy life, practically. But it's not like, you know, it's just so easy, you know, it's just... Like falling off a log. No big deal at all. I just automatically, I'm so righteous, automatically want to do right by everybody I come in contact with. No. The Lordship view teaches in order to be a Christian, you've got to do more than believe the gospel. And I see that as adding to the gospel, and that's unbiblical. You've got to believe. Should we live holy, righteous lives? Absolutely. Please don't ever say I'm, you know, saying you should live sinfully. If you know me, you know that's not true at all. I think we should live a righteous, holy life. But if you think it's going to happen automatically, you're in for a world of hurt. It doesn't happen automatically. Let's talk just for a second about free grace. This view teaches that a person becomes a Christian when they understand, they believe the gospel. All right? At that moment, they are placed in the body of Christ. They are given Christ's righteousness. They are indwelt by God. They are as sure as heaven as they are already there because they are in Christ. Because God permanently indwells, His power is constantly available for the believer. But that power will not operate in the Christian's life, however, unless he personally appropriates it by faith. Moment by moment, the believer needs to trust God rather than himself to give him the power for victory in daily life. God calls all believers to be disciples. But many don't pay the price. Many will not pay the price to be a disciple. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace, but discipleship is costly. Salvation is our birth into the Christian life. Discipleship is our education and maturity in the Christian life. Eternal life is a gift of grace to all who believe, but Luke makes it sound like discipleship is a little bit more stringent. So therefore, any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
Sounds like a pretty high standard, renouncing all that he has. You see, discipleship is a call to forsake all and follow Christ. And that's what we're called to do. We're all called to do that. But do you see the same thing there as John 3.16? Ah, there's a difference there. And some people, you know, just go crazy over that difference and say, this Bible's schizophrenic. No, it's not. You've got to understand who it's talking to. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we can live as we please and do as we wish. Please, again. We are called to holy living. Grace doesn't give us a license to sin. Grace doesn't constitute an excuse for carelessness. And I've heard Christians push this envelope that far. Oh, it doesn't matter. We're saved. We can do it. No, you can't. Or let me say this again, back a different way. Yes, you can do what you want, but it's going to cost you. Okay? Well, I'm a Christian. It won't cost me. In eternity, it won't cost you. Right here and now, it will cost you. And I wish people would understand that. Sin has a price to pay. Okay? Sin is damaging. Sin is destructive. It ruins lives. It ruins families. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, He chastens. To live in sin is going to cost us. Sin. Any sin. All sin will cost us in this life. Look at Matthew 18. 32-35 here. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. You know what's going on here. All right, this guy owed his master a whole bunch of money, a debt he could never pay. And the master said, pay me. And he goes, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. Well, he couldn't pay it. It was an unpayable debt. But the Lord forgave him. All right? So another fellow servant comes along and he wouldn't forgive that man who owed him just a little bit. So the Lord's like, hey, this is not right. So his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. His debt was forgiven because he's a Christian. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Isn't that a Christian's call to do? We're called to forgive because we've been forgiven. We're called to show mercy because we've been shown mercy. But you didn't do that. Now watch, in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. Boy, I hate this translation. It's a terrible translation. The word jailer here is from the Greek word vasanestes. You know what it means? Torturer. Torturer. God said, he's angry. I'm going to deliver you to the torturers until you pay the debt. In other words, you want to live in sin... It is going to be painful. It is going to cost you. Now watch the application. So also, my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you, believers, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Here we see one who has been forgiven, a believer, being turned over to the tortures because of sin in their life. And in verse 35, he tells us that God's going to do this to us If you live in sin, you don't forgive, you do sinful things. Christian, sin is a wicked taskmaster, and it brings a payday. And there's pleasure in sin. If there wasn't pleasure in sin, nobody would do it, okay? There's pleasure in sin for a season, but there's a payday for sin. And in this life, sin costs you. So don't think you can live an unrighteous life life and do whatever you want. I'm free. I'm good. You're going to get to heaven because God's not changed. You're in Christ. But He's going to whip you pretty good here and now. Okay? All right. Let me ask you this question. God forbid. 
What if I'm wrong? <laughs> Amen. I agree with you. Amen. If I am wrong, it wouldn't be the first time and it won't be the last time, okay? As Jeff said, put it on the list, okay? All right. <laughs> Let's think about this. Calvinists, you that are Calvinistic, think with me, okay? If I'm wrong, what damage could this view possibly cause? Okay. If the free grace view is wrong, it could cause people to think they're saved when they're really not, right? They could have false assurance. So, um, I could be giving unbelievers a false hope, right? So what? So what? Sue me. Okay? What, so what? They're not a Christian, but now they think they are because I believe, they think they believe something they didn't really, they have some kind of false hope. Alright? Do you believe in election? Will the elect of God ever be lost? Will the reprobate ever be saved? No. No. So in my opinion, the worst the free grace view does is gives false hope to the reprobate. Okay? Big deal. I can live with that. But listen to me. If the Lordship teaching is wrong, what harm does it do? It causes believers to think they're not redeemed. It causes believers to doubt their salvation because their performance is not adding up to all these high standards that people come up with. It can bring the elect under guilt and condemnation. It can cause believers to give up on Christianity because this, these standards are incredible. They're not living up to them. They say, I just must not be a Christian. They must be right. I must not be a Christian. And it just causes them to give up and walk away. So, it hurts the church. Notice what Jesus said about those who harm the flock of God. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. You want to go swimming with a 50-pound weight around your neck? See, the Lordship view can hurt the church of God by causing Christians to constantly live in guilt, constantly live in doubt. I just don't know if I'm living up to the standards. But the worst, the free grace view does, in my opinion, it gives the reprobate false hope. I don't care. They're reprobate. Let me help them out a little bit. Okay? As I see it, only the Lordship view is harmful to the church. And that's all we really care about is the church. We have to admit that neither of these views can change the destiny of the elect, okay? So whether you hold one or the other is not going to change the destiny. But I think it does make a difference in the church, harming the church, okay? When I was lordship, it didn't put me in the position of thinking, you know, doubting my salvation or questioning my salvation because I was a Pharisee. I was at the top of the chain. All right, I was doing everything perfectly that all the lordship people said to do. Of course, not really, but, you know, in my mind I was. So I was okay. But I'll tell you what, I put a lot of other people under guilt and condemnation because I had a standard of the, you had to do this, 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 or you weren't really in. Thank God for grace. Okay? Thank God for forgiveness because He moved me on. But people, listen. 
That's, that's my issue with lordship. I think it really does hurt the church because I think it causes true Christians. And pe- people, we're all at different levels in our Christian walk. Okay, we're all different levels of maturity. We've all had di- different backgrounds, different things. And that, that affects us. And I really believe you can take a genuine believer, someone who truly trusts God, if they're not in an environment, a correct environment, they're never going to grow. They're never going to make any progress in their Christian life. They're not being taught. They don't know anything. They're in a bad church just teaching whatever, and they're just going along. They don't know any better. If you're going to grow and prosper, you need to be under the teaching of the Word of God. You need to be in the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible. If you're not doing that, you can see people who truly have trusted Christ, and they just don't look all that great. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your love for us. Lord, I ask as we deal with this incredible book before us, the First John, that You would teach us, Lord, Teach us what it means to walk in fellowship with You. To live in such an intimate relationship with You that sin grieves our heart. Every sin. All sin. And we would desire above all else to live righteously and holy for Your glory, Lord. Because we love You. Because we're thankful for all You've given to us. We love You, Lord. Amen. Okay. Questions? All right, uh, it says, my name is Linda. Is it possible that we are not a believer unless we believe that we only need to believe <laughs> to be saved and don't doubt our salvation? <clears throat> I, I don't think, Linda, I would go that far because, you know, I've been there. I mean, at one time, you know, I like I said, I was lordship. I believe there's a lot of things you had to do. At one time, I was Arminian. So, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, now, there's lines that need to be drawn there. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if you're like the Church of Christ and you say you have to be water baptized to be saved, I think that's an abomination. I think that's a cult. And I think that's wrong. And I think if you're trusting your baptism, you're wrong. Dead wrong. Okay? But I don't think just because we don't understand, you know, all the intricate workings of it, you know, uh, it doesn't require that. I think the gospel is very simple. You come to a place where you realize that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. And you realize what Christ has done has provided for your salvation. And you trust that. I think it's just that simple. I think we add way, way too much stuff to it. Because listen, it is of God. It's an act of God. He gives us life, then we believe. The reason we believe is because we have life. We can't believe without the life. Once we believe, we're in. Once we have the life, we're in. Well, now we're in from eternity past because we've been predestined. Okay? It's all part of the plan of God. The, the bottom line of this is it gives glory to God. Because it's, it's all of Him. You don't thank yourself. You know, I used to think, I'm smarter than that guy. See, I heard the gospel, I believed it. I mean, that's because of my high intelligence level, right? No, okay? It's because I was a lack, okay? But see, it, it puts you in a position to look down on other people and say, They're not as smart as me. They didn't believe the gospel. What's wrong with them? And it puts you in a position of pride. Anybody else? We done? Okay. The question deals with Romans chapter 11. Look, and I can't go into Romans 11 now, but I have it online. So just, I encourage you, go go to our website, go to Romans 11, and I explain that whole thing in Romans 11. The unbeliever being broken off. They were unbelieving Israel. 
okay? They were broken off from that tree, the root, which was the Abrahamic promises. They were broken off from those promises because they wouldn't believe them, all right? And believers were grafted in to those promises and become partakers of that tree. But it's not dealing with individual salvation. Got another one? Yeah, Patty Bailey. Please clarify the difference between the demons believing in Jesus and the believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and not shall Okay. First of all, it doesn't matter what demons believe. Okay? It doesn't matter what they believe. They're irredeemable. Okay? Christ died for men. He didn't die for demons. So it doesn't matter what demons believe or don't believe. All right? James says they believe in trouble. Listen, whenever we talk about this subject, everybody rushes to James 2. Faith without works is dead. That's what he said. All right? Translations have added such faith or that faith, which is not there in the text at all. All right? Faith without works is dead. Again, that's online. I've done a couple messages on that because it's not... Paul and James are not contradicting each other. They're not fighting with each other. Okay? They're saying the same thing. James is dealing with your life and the damage. If you go back to chapter 1, James is dealing with sin. Stay away from sin because sin will cost you. And then he says, your faith is not going to protect you from the damaging effects that sin brings. Okay? You have to live holiness. And if you don't, this is going to cost you. And then he goes and gives illustrations to the fact. And it's, you know, I know it's a complicated argument. Everybody wants to go to James 2. James 2 disproves the whole rest of the Bible. Okay? Everything that Paul taught, everything everybody taught, Yeshua taught, it's all wiped out by chapter 2. Instead of people thinking, I wonder if we got James 2 wrong. They think, the whole rest of the Bible must be wrong. No, it's not. You know, let me tell you how crazy this is. William Bell, he's done like four, uh, at least last time I checked, four different videos attacking or against what, what I did on uh, preterism, uh, dangers within preterism. He's done four of them. I only watched 30 minutes of the first one because I couldn't stomach anymore because he took Romans 3.28, okay, that <clears throat> says, by faith, we're justified by faith. And he added in there, by the works of faith. And he said it was okay to add those words in that verse because James 2. James 2 gives you the right to put words in the Apostle Paul's mouth. I don't know. That's just that's insane. It's insane, people. The Bible is a whole. It doesn't fight with itself. It doesn't contradict itself. That's the whole thing with the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets Scripture. So, let's figure out James 2. And again, I've got it online. I've done James 2. I don't think it's all that complicated. But uh, I will, trust me, in this series, in John, we're going to have to do James 2 again, you know, so people cannot, you know, run there and just discount the whole rest of the Bible. Okay. What? Wendy did it. Yeah, all right. Let, let, me, let me close in prayer. Uh, yeah, sorry. I knew this was going to be a long-winded one, though. And I knew there would be questions. And, you know, again, it's just like, it's amazing to me how people fight this idea of salvation by faith alone. It's just, it's like, it's, that's horrible. You've got to do something. Christ did it all. <laughs> I'm pretty glad about that, people. Let's pray. Father, 
Lord, I thank you. I know this topic is difficult. I know there's a lot of questions that people have. It just seems like a works mentality is so ingrained in us, Lord. And if we don't perform, we don't work for it, we just don't have it or something. I don't know. It's confusing. But Father, I ask that you would open our eyes, give us ears to hear, help us to to be Bereans, Father, and take what was said this morning and, and look at it, dig it out, search for it. Go to James 2. Does one chapter wipe out all the rest of the New Testament? I don't think so. I think we need to understand James 2. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Amen.